Thank you. Um, it's really a delight to be here. Uh, again, I have lots of good memories from when I was here a few years ago, and it's always nice to be invited back someplace. It means it wasn't a total disaster last time. Um, and uh, I feel like it's, uh, there's a, a sort of bond that we have at Westminster Seminary, California, with this congregation. You've sent three young men uh, from this congregation over the last few years to study with us, and they've been a it's, it's been so nice to have them. They've been a real gracious presence uh, on our campus. And um, we're, uh, it's a privilege for us to have a share with you in raising up men for the ministry uh, for the decades to come. So thank you for uh, the invitation, and I'm uh, really glad to be here. Uh, as your pastor said, uh, I'm asked to speak on the glory of God and uh, I, was, I had written a book that was published last year on God's glory alone, and it actually wasn't my idea to write that book. I was asked to do it, but as, as Pastor Abendroth said, it's, I mean, there's no greater topic than that. So when you get asked to write a book on that kind of topic, we, in part you think, well, why didn't I think of that myself? Uh, and it was, a, it was uh, wonderful to be able to work on that topic, and it's a privilege to be able to come and to speak about it to you. And I want to do so in this first lecture, uh, especially to set this topic in the context of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, it's Reformation Day in a couple of days, and um, you may know that next year will be the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses on the door in Wittenberg, Germany. And um, it, it's interesting, I, I just received an invitation uh, a few weeks ago, to speak at a conference next year that is going to be styled Reformation 500 Conference. And I thought, you missed a good opportunity. This could be Reformation 499 <laughs> Conference this year. And um, it has a nice ring to it. Um, so you missed that opportunity. But um, I, would, I, I think it's worthwhile for me to spend a, a little time in this first lecture thinking more broadly about the Reformation and then try to... Uh, to try to work this theme of God's glory alone um, into the context of the Reformation. This church is an heir of the Reformation. Uh, whether you're aware of that or not, uh, a church like this, you can't conceive of a church like this without the Reformation. And for, for centuries, really, all Protestants looked at the Reformation as this great blessing, a great gift from God that not only had great theological blessings, blessings for the spiritual life of Christians, but also broader cultural, social, political benefits that kind of were carried along with the Reformation. But in recent years, uh, there has been some real serious arguments, in a sense, against the Reformation, not just by Roman Catholics, who you might expect to have a less high opinion of the Reformation than Protestants, uh, but there are many, even Protestants, who are, have raised questions about how, how beneficial really was the Reformation. Is it really all that relevant for us today? And there are many people in broader uh, uh, society who don't even have much interest in theology or Christianity uh, who have been critical of aspects of the Reformation so I want to reflect on that, and I think it might be helpful for us to, to take account of, of this and, and to think about some of these, uh, these criticisms. Now, 
one very interesting book that came out a few years ago uh, was by a scholar named Brad Gregory, who is a professor at Notre Dame. And he wrote a book called The Unintended Reformation. And I, I want to reflect on that book. It, this, this is a heavy academic tome. I don't expect, I mean, there may be someone here who's read it, but I don't, wouldn't expect you to have read this book. But let me try to summarize really briefly his main claim, because even though it's a very academic book, it's not that hard to understand his main, his main thesis, his main claim in the book. He says this. Now, if you go back to the Middle Ages, the medieval period, here you are in the midst of Christendom, this kind of unified Christian society through all of Europe. And Gregory says, during this time, there was what he calls an institutionalized worldview. Let me explain what he means by that. All right, worldview, he means that there's, there was sort of this way of looking at the world, this basic perspective on life, a basic perspective on, on Christianity, a basic perspective on the meaning of things, and that this, this worldview was institutionalized. In other words, all the major institutions of society all embraced this worldview. So whether it was civil government, or the church, or families, or the universities, everyone bought into this worldview. Now, there were a lot of debates. They, they, they had debates and controversies about various things. But about the big picture truth, they all had this basic agreement on the importance of who God was, who Christ was, the importance of the church. But in the later Middle Ages, so in the time just before the Reformation, right, there, were, there were a lot of reform movements, and people started, there were sort of questions about things, but still everyone agreed. Right, we need to have a unified Christian society. We all need to be under the one church and then when the Reformation happened, the Reformation basically, some of these reform movements just kind of broke out, right? like the dam burst. And unlike these earlier reform movements trying to bring, you know, to, to, to bring reform to various aspects of the church and, to the, and society, all of a sudden what the Reformation did is it broke the church apart. It broke apart the, this institutionalized worldview. Right? Now it basically said... Um, uh, you don't have to be under this one church, right? Now we're going we're gonna to have these bigger debates about theology. And Gregory says, now this, it broke apart the unity of Europe, broke apart the unity of the Christian world. The institutionalized worldview was shattered. All right, so what, what was the implication of that? Well, Gregory says, um, it basically brought chaos to Europe, you had all these wars, these wars of religion that broke out. You know, like the, the 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 Thirty Years' War in Germany, it was it was it was devastating. I mean, he's right. I mean, there was a devastating uh, time uh, in which you had um, just social uh, chaos and poverty and disease, a terrible time. And so, according to Gregory, what happened was people realized, okay, if we are going to get our society together again, if we're going to have some measure of peace and order, what we need is to stop talking about religion publicly. Right? No more theology when we come into the public realm. So when you are, you know, if you're doing politics or if you're, you know, if you're running a, 
certain sorts of universities. Uh, we need to stop talking about theology. You can still talk about theology privately. You can still have your churches in which you, you, know, you have your religious convictions. But when we're in public, all right, we're just going to use reason. We're going to talk on, uh, in terms of reason. All right. And so religion sort of got banished to the private realm. And as history moves on, you had these movements like the Enlightenment, which I don't, I don't think I need to, to talk about that. But basically, Gregory uh, argues that over time, people realize, well, that really reason doesn't really bring social unity either, because people have different views of reason, right? What people think is the reasonable view, well, that differs from person to person. And so we end up with where we are today, what we call a kind of postmodern world, uh, in which there's this kind of moral chaos, uh, in which uh, there's no agreed-upon way to go about resolving moral controversies. Um, and um, there's no, we go into political debates, it's not as if it's really hard to illustrate this today, you know, and there doesn't seem to be any kind of solid foundation for which we can all kind of have an intelligent argument about important issues. And so what Gregory is saying is that this all this traces back to the Reformation. The Reformation was crucial in bringing us to the world of moral chaos of today. Well, that's a pretty serious charge to bring against what we Protestants thought was a great blessing for the church, for the theological and spiritual health of, uh, of Christianity. Uh, Gregory's argument has a certain logic, a certain power to it. And that's why I thought it's worth bringing it up, because uh, it's not something you can e so easily dismiss. But what to make about this? I think for those people who are a part of a church like this, you hear about an institutionalized worldview in which you actually have you know, this idea of, of moral coherence in society, right? in which people actually can agree upon the important things of life. Even if you have disagreements on smaller issues, at least you agree on the big picture things. That probably sounds pretty attractive to a lot of us. But it's worth thinking about now, was the medieval world really that great? Was it really so nice to live under this institutionalized worldview? Well, it's worth asking, whose worldview was it? What was the content of that worldview, if indeed it existed? And to some extent, I think it did. But you might ask yourselves, institutionalized Christian worldview, wonderful. But how many churches around Europe in that time we're preaching the gospel on Sundays. Maybe, maybe you could have found one somewhere that slipped through the cracks of our historical knowledge. But for the, at least the vast majority of professing Christians throughout Europe, there were not churches where they could go week by week to hear the gospel preached, the simple message of scripture expounded from pulpits. What good does it do to have an institutionalized Christian worldview when you don't hear the word of God and the gospel of Christ preached from the pulpits on Sundays? How wonderful was it to have an institutionalized Christian worldview when you didn't even have the Bible in your own language? The church at the time actually was opposed to translating the scriptures into the ordinary vernacular languages of the ordinary people. Right? Latin was the only language in which scriptures were available. 
And it was only a very small percentage of the elites who actually could understand Latin. How well did this institutionalized worldview work out for people like John Huss or John Wycliffe, who actually wanted to translate the scriptures and preach the scriptures in ordinary language to ordinary people? They ended up being martyred. How great was this institutionalized worldview? Well, I think when we start to look at Gregory's claims, we see a lot of problems with it. And it's not just on this kind of theological, spiritual level, but even on a social level. You might ask yourself, just, just as a person living in society, would, despite what we see as moral chaos around us in many respects, would you rather live here in Omaha, Nebraska in 2016 or some place, pick your place in Europe of, say, the 14th century? Would you rather be a racial minority here today or in Europe in the Middle Ages? It's not that by any means that we're where we ought to be with racial issues today here. But you might ask how, say, Jews did in medieval Europe. Would you rather be a crime victim here now or in 14th century Europe where they had no forensic techniques, where one of the ways in which getting convictions was torturing people so that they would confess. You might ask yourself, would you rather be a, ca a cancer victim now, here, or back in the Middle Ages? A pregnant woman. Would you rather be a pregnant woman now, or back in the Middle Ages, where women died all the time in childbirth and infant mortality was skyrocket high? Now, I'm not saying the Reformation gave us modern medical technology, modern judicial techniques, but I think it's worth, it's worth bringing to the fore that despite what we can see as many problems in our own societies, that the Reformation did not bring us from a wonderful world of the Middle Ages into a horrible world of today. And in fact, there are some of, there are many of the things that... Um, brought the theological and spiritual renewal of the Reformation era, also did open up many avenues for um, improvements in our legal systems, uh, in, our, um, in our academic world, and things that have brought us many good things. Well, let me move on from Gregory's thesis. Um, and... Now, take this to a little bit more of a specific theological level. There are other people, many people who have said recently, even some Protestants, from prominent Protestants, who have said the Reformation may have had, it, it may have had an important place back in the 16th century, may have had an important role to play, but it's kind of passe. Because, you know, Roman Catholics and Protestants have come together in a lot of ways, and we just don't have the differences that we, we used to have. And so it's actually kind of a backwards thing to emphasize the Reformation and you know, the solas of the Reformation. Faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, scripture alone, God's glory alone. And I don't, I, I don't have any intention of... I, I don't want to polemicize against Roman Catholics. That's not really what I want to do. I don't want to make this negative. But I do want to highlight a few things 
as we kind of move into this, the topic of God's glory alone, I would like to make a brief case to say we still need the Reformation and that the theology of the Reformation is still crucial for the spiritual and theological health of our churches and for our individual Christian lives. And maybe it'd be helpful to do that by looking at each of these Reformation solas. Sola is the word, uh, the Latin word for alone. So when we say scripture alone or God's glory alone, that's where we get this word, we use the term sola. Uh, Think with me for a moment about sola scriptura. So scripture alone. Now there are some that have argued recently that the Roman Catholic Church and Protestants have come together uh, on this issue. We're, we're, at least we, we may not be exactly the same place, but we've come together a lot on this issue. Because if you go back 50 years to the Second Vatican Council, Vatican II, uh, this this what Rome considers this, this ecumenical council, this great council of the church, it took an important step by encouraging ordinary people to read the Bible. It encouraged theological scholars to study the Bible. Right? And so this is, supposedly this is a big step for Rome. Right? Let's actually read the Bible. Right? Let's study the Bible. Now, in a way, that's, I, I don't want to just dismiss that because it has opened up biblical study among some uh, Roman Catholics. And I think we can be grateful for the degree to the, which that's happened. But what doesn't often get emphasized is that at this Vatican Council, Rome also quite clearly gave up on what we in churches like this might call the infallibility or inerrancy of Scripture. So while it opened up the scriptures for study, it kind of gave a blessing to private study of of scripture in a way that the Roman Catholic Church had not done before. Actually, it reduced the authority of scripture. Uh, It acknowledges that there there are errors in scripture. Scripture is sort of generally inspired, but it's it's not free from error. It's not as if it can't fail. In, in certain points. It might be, it it's has authority, you know, in terms of, 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 of faith, but not as to all the details. And so I would actually suggest that in many ways, Vatican II drove Rome further apart from traditional Protestant Reformation Christianity. I mean, we could say previously to that, at least we agreed with Rome that scriptures were infallible. Even if, we certainly didn't agree exactly as to how, their, how its authority played out in the life of the church. Now we're further apart on that. Now you might say Rome is more dependent upon the Pope, the magisterium, because how is a Roman Catholic to know, as he or she studies the scripture, what parts of it are actually true? So I suggest that it's not clear at all that we're closer to Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church now than we were 50 years ago. And what about these other solas? Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. Let me make a few brief comments on those as well. Because there are those who have argued that when it comes to a doctrine of salvation, and really these three solas, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, they all get to the doctrine of salvation. How are we right with God? 
people have argued that, you know, Protestants in Rome have come together. Uh, there have been many you know, ecumenical discussions and these statements that have been made, and we're coming closer together. Is that really true? Well, again, I, my purpose here is not to beat up on the Roman Catholic Church, but I think it's worth facing some facts. What about Christ alone? In at least the 50 years, this is, you can see this again in Vatican II from the 1960s. And uh, you know that part of official Roman Catholic doctrine is that people from any religion, and even people of no religion, can be saved. You might say, well, that, maybe that's just some, you know, just some radical progressive theologians. Maybe someone who teaches at Creighton or something. I don't really know who's teaching at Creighton these days, but I, you know. Um, but that's actually not true. That it, it's, this is official. This, conservative Roman Catholic theologians teach this, right? That you, if you are a good Muslim, you are a good Buddhist, a good Hindu, you can, you can be saved. In fact, you could be an agnostic or even an atheist and potentially be saved if you respond well to whatever light you have. Now, there's a lot to be said theologically about that. It raises a lot, of, a lot of weighty questions. But I guess it's worth asking the question, do you, would, do you feel like you as a Protestant, a Reformation Christian, are closer to Rome now than you would have been a few hundred years ago when Rome says... Yeah, you can, be, you can be right with God through Allah. You can be right with God through Buddha. You can be right with God as an agnostic. What happens ultimately to Christ alone in that sort of way of thinking? Um, what about faith alone? Have we, have we who embrace the doctrines of the Reformation... Have we really become closer to Rome on faith alone? I say, I don't think anything really has changed. There's still the doctrine that it is not by resting on Christ and his obedience, his righteousness alone that we are saved. By faith alone, Rome still says that it is by meritorious good works that we are right with God that we are justified before him. And in terms of grace alone, I just point out again that Roman Catholic doctrine still has the doctrine of purgatory. That those who die without sufficient merit, without sufficient virtue, which is basically everybody, right, still must go to purgatory to suffer, to be purged of sin, to pay off sins, right, to be built up in merit and virtue before you can get to heaven. Right? How much kinship do you, do we feel, we who affirm God's grace alone saves us? Now, I simply point out those things in order to make a brief case that the Reformation is still important. That when we say we are the heirs of the Reformation, children of the Reformation, that is not some passe statement, you know, some sort of historical relic from 500 years ago. 
This is still something that's vital. These are still doctrines that are vital for who we are as a church and as individual believers. Well, what about our, our focus today uh, for this conference, uh, God's glory alone? I do think in a lot of ways this, this doctrine seems like a little bit of an outlier because when you, if you think about the Reformation, it wasn't as if the Protestant reformers tried to reform every single doctrine of the church. They, they, they didn't. They didn't think that the doctrine of the Trinity needed to be reformed. They didn't think the doctrine of Christ being true God, true man in one person needed to be reformed. Right? There were a lot of things that the medieval church got right. right. But when you think about what the Protestant reformers wanted to focus on, what they really thought needed to be reformed, there were two main areas. First was in regard to authority. What is our authority, our religious authority? The Roman Catholic Church had said, well, Scripture plus the Pope in Rome, the magisterium. And in fact, it was ultimately the Pope, the magisterium, that had the final word. So it really stood above Scripture. The Protestant Reformation came and said, Scripture alone, that is our final authority. We, we take seriously Christian tradition. We take seriously those who have gone before us and wrestled with matters of the faith. But Scripture alone is our final authority. And then the other major issue was the doctrine of salvation. And so the other four solas, Scripture alone, and then Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, all get at those two major issues of the Reformation. But what about God's glory alone? It's, I mean, it's not as if it's not as if Roman or medieval Christians were going around saying, glory doesn't belong to God. And it's interesting that the Jesuit order, you have a Jesuit school here, at, uh, uh, here in Nebraska. Uh, Creighton is a Jesuit school. I have my PhD from a Jesuit school, uh, Loyola University of Chicago. And on my diploma, right, in Latin, is ad maiorum dei gloriam to the greater glory of God. Now, the Jesuits were founded for the specific purpose of combating Protestants. Right? And they adopted as their motto, God, you know, to the greater glory of God. So it's not as if they were setting themselves up against God's glory. So we might wonder, how, how does this fit in? Why, is this, why should we see this as an important theme of the Protestant Reformation? Here's how I would suggest that we look at this. I, I think this idea of God's glory alone is, it's kind of the glue that holds the other solas together. It's that which kind of brings everything into a wonderfully coherent picture. Or, a, 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 yeah, I guess you might put it that way. It, it, it makes it into a whole. It gives us the right perspective. You might think of it this way. If you had asked a medieval Christian, say, a, you know, someone who knew something about Christian theology, is scripture important? Is faith important? Is grace important? Is Christ important? Well, I would have said yes. And so when the Reformation came talking about scripture and grace and faith and Christ, they weren't saying anything new. They weren't introducing new terms or new concepts. What was really significant about the Reformation was they said, these things 
alone. It was the word alone that was absolutely crucial. It's not scripture and, faith and, Christ and, but it's these things alone. That's where the rubber hit the road. That's the divide between the Reformation and, uh, and uh, what we now know as the Roman Catholic Church. Now, here's how you might think of it. By affirming alone, it's a way of saying all credit and all honor, all glory belongs to God. God's word is all sufficient. It doesn't have to be God's word and a human word to add to it in order to get what we need. When we say grace alone, we're saying it's not God's grace plus something we add that gives us what we need. When we say Christ alone, we're saying he is an all-sufficient Savior who has done everything necessary for our salvation now and for ages everlasting, not Christ and someone or something else. And so when you think about it in those terms, you see how it's basically saying all the credit, all the honor, all the glory belongs to God alone. By saying alone, we are saying all glory belongs to God. Or to think of it from a little different angle, but really the same thing, to say that we need to supplement God's word, that we need to supplement God's grace, supplement the work of Christ, it challenges their perfection. Is there something imperfect about Christ's work, something imperfect about Christ's grace, something imperfect about the scriptures? If we say that, whether we say it explicitly or say it implicitly, doesn't that dishonor God? Doesn't that detract from God's glory? Here's one more thought, briefly, along these same lines. When we think about these other four solas, they do require us to ask certain questions about ourselves. Right? Where do I find the truth? Truth about the most important things. Right? Where do I find salvation? How can I be right with a holy, powerful God. What soli deo gloria, how that helps us here is to put those questions in perspective. It's not ultimately about me. Right? We ask these questions and we can become very I-focused. Right? Where do I find truth? How, do, how am I saved? How do I find life, blessing? Remember, even as you ask those very important questions, it's ultimately not about you. You are not the center of the universe. Uh, you are not the most important thing. Now, I want to I explore, especially the next lecture, how even as we say, I'm not the center of the universe, I'm not the most important thing, when you acknowledge that God is the most important thing, the center of the universe... That is the way in which you actually become honored, in which you become blessed, in which you yourself come to share in something of that glory. So it doesn't demean you. Ironically, acknowledging that God's the center of the universe 
is the way that you are going to be most honored yourselves. So we'll get to that. But I think it helps by remembering that God's, it's God's glory alone. And it helps put our personal questions in proper perspective. Now, as I conclude this, uh, this first lecture, I want to just pick up on this, this, in a sense, this last point that I made. And this will be a way to kind of make a transition to uh, the second lecture in which I want to turn to Scripture. I'm going to try to have a Scripture-saturated lecture uh, for our, our, our 10 o'clock hour. I want you to think about, I want you to keep in mind that soli deo gloria is about God. Now you might say, well, duh. I mean, what else could that mean? Well, I, think, I suppose it's because of our sinful pride, our sinful vanity, our sinful self-obsession. It's very easy for us to forget, even when we're talking about God's glory alone, that it's really about God. If you hear, you know, as I was not trying to pick, in a sense, pick on Roman Catholics earlier. Here, I don't want to pick on fellow Protestants, evangelicals. Um, but if you if you read about what a lot of Protestants say about God's glory alone, or if you would go to a lot of Protestant churches and hear a conference on God's glory alone like you're doing this morning, a lot of the focus is kind of us-centered. You know, what can I do to glorify God? How can I glorify God in my daily work? How can I glorify God in my political involvement? How can I glorify God in my family life? And sometimes you sit back. It's not as if those are illegitimate questions. Those those are legitimate questions. But sometimes it seems very imbalanced to me. You sit sit back and you you say, well, why are we just talking about ourselves so much? Is it really the case that God's glory alone is about what I do, what I do, what I do, what I do? Very interesting, as I was doing... I, as I was uh, doing my research for the, this book that I wrote on the, on the subject and reading some older Protestant theologians talking about the subject of God's glory, I found very helpful some of the ways, the, the, the perspective that they had in, in, in un, unpacking this idea. And I want to share just briefly how some of them did this. And I think this will be a helpful perspective uh, as we move on to look biblically at this subject in the, next, uh, in the next hour. Here's how some of these earlier theologians looked at the subject. They said, okay, if we think about God's glory, the first thing we need to affirm is that God is inherently glorious. Glory is an attribute of God, a characteristic of God. Right, if you ask about God's attributes, we think of things like his holiness, his power, his wisdom, his justice, his mercy. Right? So we have all these attributes of God that we, that we learn from Scripture, that we affirm. One of these attributes is that God is glorious. Right? 
even if he had never created this world, he is internally majestic and beautiful and infinitely so in ways our minds cannot even begin to understand. God's glory is, first of all, a characteristic that only he himself even fully understands. But God has been pleased to reveal his glory to a world that he's made. So God has willed to create a world and to make his glory manifest. And that God, might say, takes that eternal, infinite, incomprehensible glory that he himself fully understands. And he has made that glory known in this world. In the creation that he has made, he has revealed something of his glory. As he sustains this world, hour by hour, moment by moment, he reveals something of his glory. And especially as he brings salvation to a lost world, as he takes miserable sinners lost in their, in their guilt and in their sadness and their brokenness, and he reconciles them to himself and exalts them, he brings glory to himself. And he makes us people for himself who are able to obey him, to serve him, to worship him, to glorify him. He makes, he reveals his glory by making us poor creatures able to sing his praise, able to serve him and bless others in this world. And he's also, at the end of this great story, he will glorify us with his son in the new creation for ages everlasting. So you see, God's glory alone has something to do with us, very much has something to do with us. And it does have something to do with how we can act, how we can think, uh, how we can conduct our lives in ways that glorify God. But what we have to keep in mind all the time is that this is first and foremost God glorifying himself. It's not about us and our own agendas and you know, making sure we get everything right. It's about God working in us to make us the kind of people who can therefore reflect his glory and enjoy his glory and praise him for his marvelous majesty and his insurpassable beauty.